Umpire fans and welcome to the Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Joining me on this episode is 1988 Olympian, 1990 International Umpire of the Year, and a man who polishes his umpire belt, Jim Cressman. Topics we look to cover are his experience with Steve Palermo and John McSherry at Umpire School, how he almost accidentally smuggled a Cuban national into America, and his love for mentoring. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming. Hello, baseball and umpire fans, and welcome back to another episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Well, it's the start of another episode, a start of some more fun and excitement. You're back. Thanks for coming. Now, like we do at the start of every episode, we like to pitch our social media, right? So if you haven't checked us out on Facebook, you can find us at Leading Edge Umpire Stories on Facebook. We share some stuff. We like to have some fun and really just get the brand out there. So if you haven't checked it out already, go over to Facebook and search for Leading Edge Umpire Stories and you're going to find us. Okay, social media stuff is all over. We're going to get rolling into this episode. Now, before we get to visiting with 1988 Olympian, 1990 International Umpire of the Year, Jim Cressman. Let's recap what happened on the last episode with British Columbia Umpire Association President, internationally experienced umpire, Rhonda Pauls. Now on that episode, she explained her awesome experiences at both international events in Japan and Mexico. She briefly discussed what it was like to umpire at the Pan Am Games in Toronto, and she shared with us her work with the Grand Forks International Baseball Tournament in British Columbia. Now, in case you missed that episode, here's a snippet of what you're missing. I started out uh, in the in the early years. I did Bantam Girls National Tournaments, and then I moved into the Senior Women's Tournaments and uh, the Pee Wees. I think I've worked Bantams, Canada Cup. He would just continue on through the plate and to the other side of the plate and took me out at the feet tossled me up in the air and we, we use that expression uh, when I was growing up, arse over tea kettle, yeah. uh, if that creates a visual for you. So we actually had to put George kind of one on either side. We locked arms with him and we just ran through really quick, hoping that it wouldn't <laughs> minimize the damage. Like we do as umpires, we just roll with everything and you, if you got to wait four hours to get a ride, you wait four hours to get a ride. That's just the way it is, right? We're such a development organization in BC that we're always looking for opportunities to introduce new things. So I did actually, you're going to laugh at this, the very first softball game I ever watched in my life was at the Pan American Championships. <laughs> we had a we had a full-on brawl at that tournament that was my, I mean, I've had... I've dealt with brawls that were men, and they got nothing on women brawling, I'll tell you that. It was just overwhelming, really, the the privilege and the honor when there's so many people in our program that have done such amazing things that somehow they landed on me that year was very humbling. In province with our national umpires, but across the country and the friendships that we've all built means so much more to me than just those are baseball people. These are family. These people become our family. Rhonda, I couldn't agree more. The people that we meet umpiring this fantastic game become our family. And I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing with us your wisdom and your experiences that you've gained 
through this fantastic game. Okay, I know. That's the recap of the last episode. You'll want to get on to this week's episode because you've probably already listened to it. But before we get to this episode, I just want to give you a heads up. This interview will be shared over two episodes. The reason being is that we got talking and time got away from us and we spent over two and a half hours listening to a lot of stories over this fine gentleman's fantastic career. So to do it justice, I felt that it was only right that we really do this over two episodes and split it up so that the listener can take a break and come back to it. Because man oh man, does Jim have some fantastic stories. So without further ado, I'm proud, honored, and privileged to bring on Olympic umpire from the 1988 Seoul South Korea Olympics, the 1990 International Umpire of the Year, and the 1991 Air Canada Amateur Official of Canada, a man who's interviewed everyone from peewee coaches up to Major League Baseball managers, and a true Canadian umpire walking legend, Jim Cressman. Jim, welcome to The Leading Edge. Thanks, Philip. Uh, I got to say it's an honor uh, following in the footsteps of some of the great umpires that you've uh, had on your uh, podcast so far. And it's a privilege to be uh, joining you. Well, Jim, the privilege is all mine. You have a storied career. I'm really excited to get into it. And the other people that have been on the show, they've made reference to you and you being a leader and someone they looked up to. So it's really nice to have you on. And I'm really excited to hear what you have to share. Now, please bear with me, Jim. I'm a rookie at this. I get to interview a man who has done a lot of interviewing over the years. So let's have fun. Well, I'll try not to be uh, some like some athletes that just go, yes, no, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Or my personal favorite, I'm only here so I don't get fined. Yeah. <laughs> so Jim, one of the first things we like to do is start at the beginning and fill us in with any background of playing history that you might have. Well, my playing career is the reason I got into umpiring because I wasn't very good. Uh, I was a right fielder when I was 13 years old on my father's team. And I was out in right field. I was squatting down. I had both hands, including my glove up on top of my head, bored. My dad called me in and said, you're not having much fun, are you? And I said, no, not really. He said, well, why don't you go home and find something else to do for the summer? <laughs> Whoa. So I get home, I go home and that night there was a phone call and my mom says, oh, it's for you. Well, it turns out it was the uh, umpire in chief for our, uh, there was a house league in our area. That, that That's what I was playing. It was the umpire in chief, John Ball. And he uh, said, uh, I see you're not playing anymore because he was umpiring that game. And I said, no. He says, well, would you like to umpire? And I went, well, okay, fine. He said, well, come to the ballpark tomorrow night. Put on, uh, if you got a pair of gray pants or whatever it is, your best Sunday pants you wear to church. I got to tell you, my mom was really impressed with that. <laughs> got a nice blue shirt or so. Next night, I put on my Sunday best and headed to the ballpark. And lo and behold, there's my dad's team. And my dad says, what are you doing here? I says, I'm umpiring. <laughs> <laughs> So I went out in the field, 13 years of age, promptly blew my first call. Well, I didn't blow a call. I just blew my first rule. Runner missed second base. As he's running to third, I called him out for missing second base. After the inning, John Ball got together with me, explained the rule about an appeal. I had no clue what he was talking about. But again, I learned my first rule of baseball was the appeal play of, of a runner missing a base. But I knew I enjoyed it. There was just something about it. I, I have to say, too, preface it with the fact that I'd always watched the officials. My dad was from Kitchener. He'd grown up with uh, Frank Adveri, who went on to be a National Hockey League referee, 
and is now in the National Hockey uh, in the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame. Frank has since passed away. But my dad also grew up with Milt Schmidt, Bobby Bauer, and Porky Dumart, who turned into the uh, Kraut line with the Boston Bruins. But because of Frank, very, I'd always watch the referees in hockey, and I'd watch the umpires in baseball. So when I was 15, I got into refereeing hockey as as well. So that was I came by my interests uh, uh, in officiating through my through my father's association with Frank and Barry. So how tough was your father on you on that first missed rule interpretation call? He said something. I said, "Hey, you get out of here. I'm going to toss you." And he said, "Okay, <laughs> we'll be fine until we meet at the breakfast table." <laughs> and at the breakfast table, he says, "I'm still your father." <laughs> Good. He supported me. I, I ended up, I was known as the kid with the whistle. My dad had been a Mountie and he had this Acme Thunder whistle. So whenever there was a road hockey game or anything like that, or a pickup football game in a sideline, I was out there refereeing. I wasn't playing. I was refereeing, blowing this stupid whistle and the neighbors were complaining about it. And it wasn't, I liked having the authority. There was just something that I enjoyed. Maybe I was a bit of a masochist because, you know, to be a sports official, you you're getting the mothers and fathers and all of the crowd yelling at you and that sort of thing. But it's never, never really bothered me. I just knew it was something that I wanted, wanted to continue and uh, pursue. Well, based on your career and what we're going to get into, it sounds like you were a natural right from day one. Thank you. Now you get into umpiring at the age of 13 doing house league, but what's really the next progression for young Jim Cressman? Back then, it was just, there was no baseball Ontario umpire, what was OBA back then, it was called Ontario Baseball Association. There was no real umpire program uh, back then, it was just go and find games to do. So I was just contacting various leagues that I knew of and said, hey, I'm I'm available as, as, as I started getting older, 14 and 15 and 16 and that sort of thing. And by the time I was 16, I was doing juvenile baseball and the juveniles at that time, there's no more juvenile ball, but they were 19 years old. So it always seemed that I was umpiring age group older than me. And I think that really helped with the, uh, with the development because I was doing some pretty good baseball. And with that, I think you just become a better, uh, a better umpire, the, the, the better quality of the, the baseball that you're doing. And by the time I was 17 years old, I was umpiring in the intercounty, the senior intercounty baseball league, which is now called the IBL, the intercounty baseball league here in, uh, in Ontario. And so I was 17 years old umpiring uh, guys like, well, one player, I'll throw a name out. Chris Spire, who went on to play in the in the National League with the San Francisco Giants. He was playing in the Intercounty at that time. He probably would have been about 22 or 23. I think he was still in college. And here I was, like 17, 18 years old, umpiring a guy like him. It was pretty good, uh, pretty good standard of baseball. And then I uh, just kind of continued on from there through the program. Baseball Ontario did get into an umpiring program at some point. I just followed through with that. Natural progression into uh, Baseball Canada. Now, let's not talk about Baseball Canada right yet, because you do have a minor professional career. Now, let's start chronologically, and let's talk about your minor professional career. Now, did you go to umpire school? Interesting story about how I ended up at umpire school. I had never, ever thought about being a professional umpire. It never crossed my mind. I was quite happy umpiring in the uh, in the intercounty league. I was 21 at the time. I got this letter from baseball umpire development, Barney Deary, who headed up minor league the minor league umpires. He said you have been in, you're being invited to the baseball umpire development program, the six week school in St. Petersburg in uh, February of 1972. I was still 21 years old. And I'm thinking like, how the heck did this ever? I had never even heard about this, but how did this come about? So I did a little investigation. Turned out that Reno Bertoria, who had played for the Detroit Tigers, he's from Windsor, he's a pretty good ball player, uh, but he went on to scout for the Tigers, and he had seen me umpire, and he knew of the baseball umpire development and how they're always looking for uh, new minor league umpires. He sent my name in, 
and sent in my resume and that sort of thing. And lo and behold, I heard later that there were 1,600 names were submitted. 87 of us got accepted. I was one of 87. I was the only Canadian that year. There had been a Canadian the previous year, Abe Shapiro from Windsor, who a lot of the uh, who a lot of the Baseball Canada guys would remember. The older guys would remember Abe. 86 of us were accepted. I think it was 75 or something graduated. A few left in the middle of the night. It was a pretty tough course. It was a six-week course. And at the end of six weeks, I was one of 27 who ended up getting a job. To that end, I give full credit to John McSherry, the the late National League umpire. John uh, John was tough on me at umpire school. He called me Mrs. Pressman. He rode me and rode me and <laughs> rode me. I later found out from him that the reason he did that was that he saw some potential in me. And I'm not, I, I don't like talking about myself, but I'm giving credit to John for what he did. Because if it hasn't been for him being on my back that whole six weeks, I don't think I would have ever got a, in fact, I know I never would have got a job because he pushed me and pushed me to to improve at the uh, at the school. But one night uh, after the five weeks, there's a bar down in St. Pete. It's no longer there. The umpires from the umpire school, we would always go on, on the Saturday night. And because we'd always been drinking there at the end, end of the work day, I'll say, everything was free that night at the bar. The, the owner of the bar uh, put, put on a free spread for us and everything. As a, as a thank you to us for coming there all the time. I learned how to drink uh, tequila. Uh, there was, I remember it was Dave, Steve, Steve Palermo, Steve Falone, and Eddie Montague, all who umpired in the major leagues. Oh, yeah. Sitting around the table, and they're doing tequila shooters and the lemon and the whole bet. And I said, what's this? And they said, oh, come on, Canadian. Sit down and we'll teach Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't want to say how bad I was. On the way home, I still remember that Steve Palermo was driving my car because I couldn't drive. I was in the back seat. And all I said was, well, I shouldn't say it was my car. It was my mother's car. And I had said... If I say stop, stop, slam the brakes on because I'm going to open up that back door and I'm going to puke. <laughs> sure enough, I think that happened twice. We got back to the umpire school at about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning to the uh, the dorms. We were staying at the Little League uh, complex in St. Pete. I uh, I knew where John McSherry slept and I went in there and uh, just let's just say I was loud and obnoxious. Uh, the next day, I ended up running laps and uh, I thought at that point I'd blown every chance I had ever had. Well, jumping ahead a number of years, I was in the Eastern League and there was a game. Uh, we got rained out in Reading, Pennsylvania. And Philadelphia was only 50 minutes away. So the GM of the Reading Ball Club, which was the minor league club for the for the Phillies in the AA Eastern League, said a bunch of the players are going down to the game at the vet. Uh, do you guys want a couple of tickets to my partner and I, Dick Adams? We said, yeah, okay, we'll go down. We got down there about the second inning, right behind the dugout, really great seats. Of course, and McSherry is actually umpiring on the game. He's on the crew. So at the end of the game, we find where the umpires' room is. Go there, and we tell them, uh, "Could you send in word? There's a couple of minor league umpires here." So the guy comes right back out. Yep, come on in. So we go in, and McSherry sees me from across the room, and he goes, "Mrs. Pressman," and I go, oh, it's, "It's Mr. Pressman now, Mr. McSherry." And, <laughs> and uh, he gave me a bear hug. I'm surprised I uh, I uh, lived uh, lived through it. But he uh, he told me that night. He said, "You know what?" He said, "A lot of people thought you had blowing your chance when you came into." room but he says i just thought you had such great balls that you were going to make a great umpire so so he recommended that i uh that i get a job so i'm always indebted to this day to to the whale as uh as he was affectionately known by all the other uh, umpires i still remember the day that he uh that he died uh the expos game was on uh was on television or in Cincinnati, and he had the heart attack behind home plate. But tell you, it was uh, it was tough. It was tough. But uh, yeah, that's my umpire school uh, story and how I managed to survive the six weeks. Well, you say that's tough. It's the experiences and the memories that we make along the way that really make umpiring and the game of baseball special. 
I wouldn't have had the opportunity to meet you if it wasn't for umpiring three, four provinces away. A big country, but a small umpire world. Yeah, just quickly say, those franchises last forever. Umpire, like, we may retire as umpires, but we still we still remain friends. We still stay in contact through Facebook or if a national, like just this summer, actually just coming up in another week, I guess it would have been. TNU was here in London. Well, I, I'm finished with the national program. I'm 70 years old now, and I, I'm not even going to do any more uh, supervising. But I got a hold of Mike Lumley, who's who's the London Badgers program. They were hosting the tournament. I said, you know what? I want to be the umpire liaison. I want to make it a special event for those umpires who are coming in. So it'd still be a chance to probably see some umpires that I know, and then meet some umpires that I that I haven't met who would become friends. Uh, I think once a baseball Canada umpire, always a baseball Canada umpire. Well, as they say, you either have to die or find your own replacement <laughs> well i'm hoping uh, this, this sounds bad because we just talked about john mcsherry but this is my 58th season uh, i'm not working behind the plate of course this year in ontario where we have the ball strike umpires working behind the pitcher but i've often said that you know what i want to if i go i want to go when i'm working the plate just get a shovel dig a hole bury me right there you know i'll be happy well, let's hope that's not anytime soon because you got some fantastic stories to share here on this episode. Thanks, Philip. I appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> not a problem, Jim. Now, you mentioned an interesting name in there with Steve Palermo. Steve is a well-respected, well-renowned umpire around the major league ranks and has quite the interesting story. But could you share with us something yeah. else about Steve and your experiences was, with uh, him? I did I did talk about, of course, the, uh, the umpire school... Uh, it's a thing with the tequila and that's how I got to know Steve with right. school. Then I ended up, lo and behold though, a uh, number of years later, I ended up at the uh, London Free Press. Well, it wasn't a number of years. It was a year after I was I was basically finished in the minor leagues because of the work visa situation. But I ended up being a sports reporter at the London Free Press and the uh, the Blue Jays, of course, their uh, home opener. I didn't cover the game, but one of the other sports writers and I had an opportunity for a couple of tickets that became available. And so we just went. We drove down, went to the game. We had to leave at about 7.30 to get back in time to, to put out the, the paper that night. But Steve was working uh, third base. And uh, so I, I commented to the sports editor. I said, oh, that was really cool that I got to see Steve Palermo work his first American League game. Uh, it was in Toronto. He was on third base. Nestor Shylock was the plate umpire. And so the sports editor says, well, why don't you do a story on Steve? So I called the Blue Jays and I knew the PR guy. And so Howie Starkman called the hotel where the umpires were, gave Steve my number. Within 20 minutes, the phone rang and it was Steve. So I did a did an interview with Steve on him working his first game in the in the major leagues. And then, of course, a number of years later, the sad story where he got shot uh, was outside of an Italian restaurant in Dallas, uh, where the server, the waitress, as they called him back then, she'd left the restaurant. This armed robber grabbed her purse and took off. So Steve and an ex-football player uh, with the Cowboys took off after the the armed robber. Well, the armed robber turned around and shot, shot Steve through the hip. And, of course, he never walked properly again. So that was the end of his major league umpiring career. Career. He, I think someday you probably see him in the Hall of Fame. He was a tremendous, tremendous uh, umpire. It's just unfortunate at such a young age his career ended. But now he's gone on to be a supervisor and he works in the commissioner's office and that sort of thing. And he's been the one lately that's really helped with with revamping the rule book and trying to clear up some of the rules, to put them in the plain English. I, I, I think a, a lawyer back in the 
that knew Abner Doubleday uh, helped write the rule book back then because, oh my goodness. But yeah, Steve, uh, Steve was just a class, class act. He was a bit of, he was a bit of a redneck. He, uh, he didn't take anything from the players. Of course, that's back in the days when you could go nose to nose. And, that's how it was. Yeah, I, I kind of missed that, but uh, it, it, it's changed. Not taking anything from players and not putting up with anything was an art form in itself. You know, we've heard about balking Bob Davidson. Yeah. Some of these guys, mm -hmm. they moved up. That's how they moved up. That was their game management skills. If you talk to Jerry Davis, he has a podcast yeah. and he says that that's not who he was. So everyone has their style. Yes. Oh, for sure. For sure. Now, you mentioned that you work minor league baseball and there were some immigration concerns. I think we'll talk about that in a bit. But can you share with us what it was like and where you worked in minor league baseball? 72 through 75 were my minor league years. I was in the Appalachian Rookie League in 1972. I still remember my first game. It was in uh, in Pulaski, West Virginia. A lot of people call it the armpit of the world. For me, it was, uh, I don't know, it was my first professional baseball game. And I'm on the bases and I'm standing there looking at the crowd of maybe 500 thinking, what is this 22-year-old? old Canadian doing in Pulaski, West Virginia. And right at that moment, I had a doubt about what am I doing being a professional umpire. Well, there was a runner at first base. Of course, I was in P3. Ball was hit. Throw to second. Throw to first base. Whacker at first base. Call the runner out. Went back to my position at P2. Never gave it another thought again. Never had another... Uh, Never doubted my decision to work in the minor leagues at that uh, at that point. 73, I ended up getting promoted to Florida State, uh, Class A League. Uh, 74, I went back to Florida State League, but within a month, there had been some move up, movement from the Eastern League up to AAA. So I was promoted to AA. So here I was in my in my third year, and I'm already in AA. 74, and then 75 started with the work, the work visa hassle. Uh, the U.S. Labor Department said that a Canadian was taking a job away from an American. Well, not only minor league baseball and Barney uh, Deary, but major league baseball got involved in writing to the U.S. Labor Department. And so eventually there had been an umpire who had taken sick in the Eastern League. They needed an emergency replacement. So they convinced the Labor Department that I could go to the United States, get a temporary visa again. Went down there in 75, finished uh, the Eastern League season that year. When 1976 was rolling around, word came that that was it. The visa would not be extended. They were not going to extend any visas at all to any Canadian umpires at that point. Jim McKean was in the American League already by then, so that didn't affect him. I was the only guy in the minor leagues at the time because Abe had already lost his visa. So, but that was it for a number of number of years. One one little regret, and again, I I don't like to talk about myself that much, but I will throw this in there. I I did know that I was next on the list to go to AAA, so I probably would have been in my fifth year moving up to AAA. And then I got to know Marty Springstead because in the uh, when I. Our seasons were over. I would always go over to Tiger Stadium and see the Tigers, uh, but I would go to the umpires' room and tell them a minor league umpire was there. I'd go in, and so I got to know Marty Springstead that way. And then we had him up to London a few times to be a speaker at our uh, sports celebrity dinner. So Marty, one night, he says, "You know, he says uh, this is probably going to bug you, but when I took over as a supervisor of umpires for the American League, there was a file on you in in, in the cabinet that uh, I found." And he says, you know, that they never really scouted double-A umpires at that time, but obviously somebody had seen you and they liked liked your work. Well, I had that couple of moments of, oh, man, you know what? Maybe I might have made it, but who knows? Maybe I never would have. And I'll just quickly throw this in, too. During the uh, during the strike, Marty called me, said, we need umpires in Toronto. And I said, no. He says, I knew you'd say that. <laughs> right. Well, because I worked. I was working at a lot of free press and I was a union man, but I knew too many of the guys in the American League. There's right. no way I could have caught that picket line. Marty said, 
He says, off the record, I'm proud of you for saying no. Because Marty had been a really, really strong union guy when, yeah. when he was on the field. He said, I had to call you. You were on the list. I had to call you. And I said, well, I appreciate that as, uh, as well. No regrets. No regrets. You know, uh, I ended up having a great 36-year run with the London Free Press. And everything I've gotten in life has basically been because of baseball and my umpiring. Jim, how did you get involved with the London Free Press? In 1976, was that the sports editor, John Vormatag, had a had a, a peewee team in an area in London called Oprah Jakers. Craig Simpson was the shortstop on that team. Small world, eh? Craig Simpson, 13 years old. Now, just a post-show edit, Craig Simpson is a relatively well-known hockey broadcaster for the Hockey Night in Canada program up here in Canada, and he's also a two-time Stanley Cup champion with the Edmonton Oilers. Now back to the show. A friend of mine who worked at the Free Press at the time, uh, Dave Langford, he said, why don't you come out and umpire some of these uh, some of these games? And this was in 75 before I went back to, uh, was able to get back into the States. And then uh, when John Bormatag found out that I wasn't going back to the, to the States in 76, the Free Press did a story on me. And one night in March, I was working out at Fanshawe College. I was supervising one of the gyms out there and doing sports information. He said, one of our guys is sick tomorrow night. It was a Thursday. Will you come in and answer the telephones? Take all the local hockey scores that are called in from all around the area, the region. And I said, well, I'm supposed to goal judge the London Knights game because I was refereeing hockey at the time. And I was also a backup goal judge for the, the OHL London Knights. And I remember John Vormatag's words to this day. He says, you want to be a goal judge or you want to be a sports reporter? And I said, what time do I start? <laughs> well, <laughs> six years later, <laughs> yeah. I, I finally retired. As I say, everything I've gotten out of life has been through baseball and uh, and umpiring. The game of baseball is just fantastic. I'll, I'll take a breath and let you ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the game of baseball is fantastic, right? It, it does bring us so much joy, pleasure, whatever you want to call it. I think it's just, I love it. And thus the reason for the podcast. Now you say you're, yeah, you're getting into... It's the greatest game on dirt. Greatest game. greatest game on dirt. And of umpiring, it's the best seat in baseball, except you have to stand. There was actually a book. There was a book that came out. Uh, there was a guy from, uh, I think he was with the Philadelphia Inquirer that followed this major league crew for a whole season. It was really an interesting book, but that was the name of the book. It's the best seat in baseball, except you have to stand. Oh, As They oh, yeah. See Him by Bruce Weber. That oh. makes sense. So many great umpire books. Oh, yes. Like I've got all of, uh, I've got Luciano's books. Baseball is just such a great, great, great sport. The history, the lore of it, it is, it is the national pastime, but just not in the United States, but in Canada oh, as yes. well. This is a post-show edit. The book, As They See Him by Bruce Weber, has been mentioned by various guests on this show. So what I'm doing is I'm going to put a link to the book. And if you want to buy it, go ahead. It's in the show description notes. Now back to this show. Now, Jim, we said it before and we say it again. There is a baseball community up here in Canada. Yeah. Oh, they're big time. Big time. No question. Let's merge quickly your reporting career and being in Ontario. What was it like being fresh at the London Free Press when the Blue Jays came to town? Well, back then, I was just covering high school hockey. As I said, though, I went to Toronto for that opener and it was in the snow. Yes. Uh, Nestor Shylock had said, if it had not been the opening game for the Toronto Blue Jays, April 7, 1977, that game would not have been played. There was like an inch or so of snow on the ground when they started the game. They had to bring shovels out yep. to shovel off power lines and, and uh, stuff like that. And everybody talks about Exhibition Stadium. They called it the mistake by the lake. Yes. If they had not had that stadium that they could convert, it was, of course, the football stadium. That's where the Argos had played. But if they had not had a ready-made stadium that they could convert instantaneously into a baseball stadium, they would have never got that franchise. Because when they were awarding the franchise, that's what they were looking for. 
And of course, Toronto had the Labatt's, big Labatt money was behind yes. them. They went to San Francisco to make the presentation because the Giants at the time, there was, there was talk that they might move. They're actually hoping to get the National League, uh, get the National League franchise. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah, but it turned out they got the, uh, they got an American League franchise. And I covered a lot of games at, uh, at Exhibition Stadium. And again, if they had not, Toronto had not had that ballpark or that stadium, they would have never got the Blue Jays. And who knows, down the road, they may have never gotten uh, a Major League franchise. So yeah, a lot of excitement. And I really think since then, baseball has really grown in Ontario. But you know, it, it's just not the players, umpires. We have, even this year with COVID, our umpires in Baseball Ontario were instruct, could still write, do an online, uh, their level one, twos, or three programs online all these different modules that they had to complete and a test and that sort of thing. We have 4,500 umpires registered Wow! this year in baseball Ontario. And a lot of them aren't even doing games because some areas just decided they weren't going to play uh, play baseball when it did go into our phase three where they, they could resume playing baseball. So, yeah, it, I think it's been just not a, only a boom that Blue Jays for, for the game itself, but also for umpires. Well, being a diehard Blue Jays fan, I'm really glad that they've came. I'm really happy that... They're in the American League East because I think that adds a little rivalry. Yes, sometimes it's difficult to compete with the Yankees and the Red Sox financially, but the Blue Jays do spend money. So yeah. they're right up there. Rogers does dump it. They're the only team that's publicly traded, you could say, technically. There has been a lot of talk in the last couple of years that Bell is interested, but they haven't stepped forward yet. But that would be... That'd be even bigger money than what Rogers, uh, what Rogers has. So, and uh, the first thing apparently the Bell would do, as I've heard from insider information, is that Bell would go back to calling it the Skydome, Makes which sense. I'm sure would thrill a lot of baseball fans. People, there's still people in Toronto that call it the Skydome. They will not call it the Rogers Center. <laughs> well, it's just one of those things that that's what you grew up calling it, right? And I see, I think we see that in a lot of different venues. Even here in Saskatchewan, we have the Mosaic Stadium. Oh. Yeah. They, they call the Taylor Field. You'll hear, and they built yeah. a new stadium, oh, yeah. and people still call the Taylor Field. Wow, the ri- Riders, geez. Oh, no, that's... oh, you coming from the Ontario there in the, on, the, on the lake? I'm a big fan of, uh, of Corner Gas. And, you know, that's the, that's the Rough Riders. Yes. Some diehards <laughs> over here. The Green Riders on Corner Gas. <laughs> yes. Okay, Jim, we talked about the Blue Jays. We talked about your post-minor league career. Now let's talk about more what you did when you came back. Share with us how many national championships that you've been a part of and your work within the Baseball Canada Umpire Program. I would say probably two dozen. That that includes just not just not only on the field, but uh, supervising. I got to a point where I found that I was really enjoying the supervising. I was getting older. I wanted to put continue to put something back into the game. So I said, you know what? I, I think my last national was... 2006 where i was on the field 2006 i think it was in quebec city it was a single site and since then i did nothing but but supervise and now i've uh, stepped back from that program as well but uh, i enjoyed working with the younger umpires especially really loved going to the uh the 13u and the 15u programs and the uh, and the senior women's senior women's was the last one that i supervised it was in windsor ontario and but i loved working with the female umpires, I also love working with the uh, with the younger umpires. And as I say, I found that was a way of giving back. Even here in, in London with the London District Baseball Association, I'm trying to do a lot of games with uh, younger umpires. Now, that's not working out this year because of the, yes, the situation. Of 
with uh, with the COVID and that. But I like to work with the um, young umpires when I can. I'll be on the bases and I let them do the plate because I just want to work and see how they're doing back there. And I go in and talk to them between innings and that sort of thing. As long as I can still walk out in the field uh, without a cane or a wheelchair or something like that, I'm going to continue to do that. I just I'm counting this as my 58th. Uh, this is my 58th season. I'm counting it. I've done uh, so far what I've done five games, I guess. So I think that's enough to say I've done my 58th. Uh, yes, 58th season. So. But that's how I want to continue to get back to the game is work with the younger umpires here in uh, in London. It's a thrill too when I see some of the umpires that I've worked with over the years that have gone on to, to join the Baseball Canada program, become a level or four or five umpire and, and work uh, national championships and go on and work some international ball as well. So that's, that's very rewarding. Now you say you don't want to walk on the field with a cane, but 59 years of umpiring, I think a few of them have said you've had a white cane probably once or twice over the years, right? Uh, or they've asked where my dog is. but you say you've seen some fantastic umpires come up through the system any of those names you want to share with us oh god you put me on the spot well you don't like to talk about yourself right so let's talk about somebody else just quickly well one guy i'll I'll mention for sure is uh, steve cochran he's a cop here in uh, in london steve had been a coach and you know he wasn't really too kind to umpires when he was coaching and we all had a few run-ins with uh, with Steve, but Steve also got into umpiring, and then he decided he made the switch. He said, you know what, I'm going to umpire. We said, okay, you've got to get right away from coaching. There's no way that you can be still coaching, umpiring, and trying to pursue getting into the Baseball Canada program. So he finally gave up the coaching, and now he's a, he's a level four umpire, and Steve has done a really good job. He beats himself up every time he goes on that field. But that's just Steve. But we continue to give him encouragement, and he's really become a really good umpire. He's working in the inner county as well. Uh, there's one other umpire, too, that I'll mention, uh, Alan Ward from Listowel, Ontario, which is about, about an hour's drive north of London. I went up to evaluate Alan. Alan wanted to try to get into the national program. It's got to be 10, maybe 12 years ago now, uh, maybe longer. I'm trying to think how old Ward he is. He's bald now. I know that. When I first met him, he had hair. So. But anyway, I'll go Anyway, he, uh, I was watching him up there and he's working with an umpire who, oh my God, this guy, uh, that's all I'll say, his partner. Just a post-show edit. That was actually guest from episode one. Jeremy Nash was the partner. Just joking. Back to the show. So I felt sorry for Wardy for, well, for Alan. That's all I knew him by at that time was Alan. Because nine times out of 10, both of them were out of position. The other guy was so far out of position. (laughs) Alan had to go out of position to cover for this guy. But there was just something about him. He was working the plate. And they did a base job. And there was just something about him that I saw during those two games. I thought, you know, he's like, I think he was 17 at the time, 17, maybe 18. And I'm thinking, you know, if, if we don't do something with him now, take this raw hire and, and try to work with him and develop it in something, he's going to get lost. He will never, ever get a shot at it. So I made a phone call. I, ca- I called uh, Rob Companion back in uh, London, who's the supervisor of umpires back here. Rob's also in the Baseball Canada program, right. and he's a long time. He's an evaluator. Uh, I, uh, I said to Rob, I told him the whole story and I said, you know, I, he doesn't, he doesn't have what I'm supposed to be writing down on the paper, but I can fudge it. What do you think? And he says, you know what, go with your gut instinct. So afterwards I talked to Alan and I told him, I said, you better not embarrass me. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to approve you to join, get into the national program, but do not embarrass me. And to this day, Alan has never embarrassed me. And you see something like that. And that's when you feel, you feel good. You right. feel, uh, it's not that you feel good about yourself. It's you feel good that you've been able to help someone who did have 
some talent to just expand and become a really good umpire. So that's the Jim John McSherry Crestman story for Allen, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah but it didn't take any uh, tequila. <laughs> no, that's, fair enough. <laughs> they should have bought me a bottle or something, uh, yeah. something like that. Well, there, uh, there's still time. There's still time. That's what I want to keep doing. As I say, as long as I can walk on the field under my own steam, I want to keep working with young umpires and uh, it just, and you know what, but if they don't, if they're not interested, then okay, fine. That's, that's, that's okay. Yep. If you're not interested in the national program, Hey, I'll still, still work with you and help you become just a better umpire locally. Right. But if you want to take that next step, I'm, I'm here for you to work with you or even, I'll even come out and watch you umpire a game. And I think that's where a lot of the older umpires still stay, get involved in the game. Is in, and, that's, and that's a key, I think, is that we as older umpires go out there because of the knowledge that we have and just pass it on to these younger right. younger guys. Because we need the younger umpires. A lot of us aren't going to be around that much longer on the field. Be around a lot longer in life, but not on the field. That's completely fair, Jim. And as a younger umpire and an individual who has directly experienced your knowledge and had the opportunity to get evaluated and supervised and mentored by you, we really appreciate it. Now here in Canada, we do have the Baseball Canada Umpire Program, the national program, and a lot of people make a big deal about it, and rightfully so. It is a big deal. It's a big program. There's a lot of effort and time that goes into it. Now, I'm not trying to knock the program in any shape or fashion at all. Because I have benefited from this program and I will attest that it changed my life and put me on a trajectory that I would not have expected. And I will be forever grateful to everybody that's ever put anything back into that program. Because though the program is designed to develop umpires, what I really feel is that it develops really good people. But in all reality, umpiring is about putting out the best product that you can and being the best umpire you can be. Because you might only do a 13U game and it might be the double A league. But if you're enforcing the rules right, those kids learn. And eventually when they turn 15, they know the game better to become better players. And eventually they work their way up through. So if you provide a quality product from day one, hopefully you get a quality product at the end. One of the things when I do a clinic, I always tell the younger, and I love doing the level ones, I, especially the ones that their first year, like you can start shaping those minds. They haven't already got the bad habits in them. And of course we know that it's tough to break, uh, break bad habits no matter what you're doing. But I always tell the umpires, you know what, you've got to give it your best that night because for those kids, doesn't matter what age they are, that's the biggest game that they're playing in their lives is that moment. So you have to umpire it like it's an important game. You just don't go out there and go, oh, my God, it's another 13-U game. It's a A or a double A, and it's 13-2. to two. I've been out here two hours. No, those kids are still playing the game, and you owe it to them to give it your best. A little preaching there. We'll take it here on the leading edge. Now, you mentioned Alan. I just want to tell you, we have a term for a guy like Alan out here in Saskatchewan. We call him a small-town prairie umpire. One of those guys that does the plate every game is probably rock-solid with a strike zone, but fails everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Just doesn't have the person to work with. Yeah, you work with them. You get that diamond, and you start shaving down the edges a little bit and start polishing it, and... You never know what you end up with. With Alan Ward, uh, we, we, Baseball Ontario and Baseball Canada, ended up with a gem. I hope he doesn't hear this because that'll go to his head. <laughs> <laughs> so your work within the Baseball Canada National Program. Now, there's one famous story, I think, in my opinion, that circulates about you. You probably have lots, but would you share with us the big banana game story, please? 
Oh God, I tried to research and I could, it was a single-sided Windsor. That's all I could remember. That's going way back. But the story goes that there'd been a big storm and I think there'd been a power failure as well mixed in with that. So they had all these games that they had to make up. Well, I was just going down, you know, I was gonna hop in the car on a Saturday, drive two hours down to Windsor, visit the umpires, maybe crash in, on somebody's couch or something like that that night. And then head back uh, the next next morning after going out and having a few Diet Cokes with the boys and uh, <laughs> maybe a slice or two of pizza. But then Don Gilbert got a hold of me. Don was the supervisor for uh, Baseball Canada at the time. And Don says, bring your stuff. We have an extra game that we don't, we don't have enough umpires. We got one umpire. Andy Callahan's going to do the plate. You and I are going to do the bases. And it's a 13U game. Oh. And it's it's Prince Edward Island, and I can't remember who the other team was. So Don Gilbert's working first base, and I'm working third base. Well, we go to the home plate meeting to start with. Co- the coaches come out with the lineup cards. Callahead hands his mask to Gilbert and says, here, hold on to this. <laughs> Gilbert takes it, looks at me, says, what am I supposed to do with this? I said, I'd throw it on the ground if, if he gave it to me. <laughs> but anyway, ground rules and the whole bit. Game's going along, and it's about the fifth inning, and there's this little wee left fielder for PEI. He couldn't have been... Man, he couldn't have been much higher than my knee. He's running out to uh, left field for the next uh, half inning. So I kind of follow him. I said, hey, slow down, slow down. So he slowed down. I said, uh, when you go back in, inning ends, when see that umpire over there at first base? He says, yeah. And I, I said, well, when you go by him, just say, I hear you're the big banana. <laughs> he goes, really? He won't throw me out? I said, no, no, he won't. You just got to say that. Well, yeah, you promise. And he goes, yes, I promise. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll bring you back <laughs> in. Inning ends. And I kind of, it hadn't slipped my mind, but I just thought, he's not going to do it. So anyway, he runs across, and all of a sudden I hear Don Gilbert just yell, hey, get back here. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, we've done it. <laughs> and I hear Gilbert say, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. I hear the Gilbert whispered it, aren't you the big banana? <laughs> Gilbert says, who told you to say that? Well, then also the kid turns and points at me and I go, oh, no. <laughs> well, the best part is the kid's parents are sitting along the first baseline and they thought, oh, no, their son's in big trouble. Yeah. So after the game, they come over to us. They wanted to know what had happened. Well, they're laughing when we tell the whole story. So, oh, yeah, that that thing started making the rounds all across uh, all across <laughs> Canada. Oh, that was a that was a classic. That was that. Poor little 13-year-old yeah. from Prince Edward Island. <laughs> yeah, he did it. <laughs> you be careful there. You talk about doing the level one clinics and those minds are so moldable, right? You be careful. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, I gotta. I start telling some war stories and I go, oh, I better not tell this one. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll end up going out there doing it. Now, the interesting thing, though, about the big banana situation, yes, Don's doing that game, but you're doing a 13U game and those for those listening... Don Gilbert went to the Olympics in 2004 and you went to the Olympics in 1988. Like mm-hmm. On a 13U game, that's the amazing thing about the Baseball Canada program is that people hang around to really give back to that program. And Andy at that time, I believe, was a Baseball Canada supervisor at, at, at some level too. So that was a well-experienced crew for a 13U game. It was, it was. But yeah, because actually Andy wasn't working the 13U he, I think he was, he might've been, I forget what other, there would have been two other levels that were playing that it might even been senior. I think that's why I was going down to see the guys who were working the seniors. I think Andy was working the senior. So they pulled him out of the senior. 
do the plate, <laughs> and then Gibby and I did the bases. But to those kids, hey, we were just three other. Well, yeah. I was fat, and he was fat. Don was pretty skinny back then. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Andy's gonna kill me now. <laughs> but going back to what you said earlier, that was the biggest game in those kids' lives up to that point. At that point, that, that that game that they were playing at, and we had and we umpired it. And to us, that was the biggest game we were umpiring right at that point. Right. It's, it reminds me of the funny story that I heard about a hockey referee. And you could use this as an umpire, too, if somebody yells at you. But this hockey referee was doing a game, and somebody yelled out of the crowd, hey, ref, you're missing a good game. <laughs> he says, yeah, I know, but this is the one they assigned me to. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and there's been so many times I've wanted to yell that back as an umpire to a spectator. I just bite my tongue. <laughs> I just because <laughs> the, the last time I yelled something uh, at a spectator, we ended up with a bullet hole in my partner's car in, in the Eastern League. Next time, <laughs> you want to hear that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we're going back to West Virginia here. Let's see what's going on. Oh, it's Reading, Pennsylvania. Oh, and we're in Reading, and I'm on the bases, and this fan is all over me for about the first four or five innings. And finally, I just yell at him between innings. I said, "Hey, hey!" He looked over. What? I said. Is your wife here? And he says, no, she's at home. I said, better get home. There's a couple ball players missing. <laughs> and so the guy tried to get on the field. He, he wanted to climb over the fence onto the field. Security kind of had to hold him back. So after the game, uh, there's a knock on the umpire's door. And uh, I go to the door and open the door. And there's a police officer. He says, can I come in and uh, talk to you? And I said, yes. And he says, we've had a complaint from uh, one of the spectators. And the cop says to me, he says, did you say blah, 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 I won't repeat it. But he said, I said, officer, I said, I'm a professional umpire. Do you really think I would say something like that? Like, like you as a professional police officer, would you say something like that to a citizen on the street? He says, no, I, I didn't, I didn't think you would. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, you talking to me. <laughs> he goes to the door, he opens up the door, he turns around just as he closes the door, he says, Great line, though. <laughs> but anyway, we get to our car that night, my partner's car, and I'm not sure if it had anything to do with that incident. I got a feeling it might. And there was a bullet hole in the driver's door. Oh. Dick Adams, my partner. Well, we were staying at this hotel. It's called Santorelli's Motor Inn. It wasn't until years later I found out that Mr. Santorelli was one of the biggest drug dealers in Pennsylvania. Fantastic. <laughs> he a plane, a biplane had flown into Reading one night. And because uh, I found this out back when I was covering the London Tigers at the Free Press, because Reading was still in the league. And so when I got into Reading, I asked about Santorelli's. They said, oh, you never heard what or what happened to Mr. Santorelli? Well, he got arrested after this plane flew in this one time. He was spending 20 years in jail, so the, the hotel not went under. But anyway, so we get back to the hotel. And we were good friends with, with Mr. Santorelli's uh, son. He just got back from the Army. And so we told him the story. And he says, uh, hey, you guys don't worry. We'll, we'll look after you. The next night, we go to leave for the, uh, we go to leave for the ballpark. Uh, we pull out of the parking lot at the motel, and this black car pulls out right behind us. Follows us right to the ballpark. We get out of the car, head into the park. The black car is right there. Game's over. We come out of the park. There's the black car. There's a guy standing, leaning up against the black car. He sees us, gives us a little salute. He gets in the car. We get in our car. He follows us back to the hotel. We never asked a word, but we think Mr. Santorelli sent one of his bodyguards to protect us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway. <laughs> I've learned to keep my mouth shut with spectators fair enough i've never been one to really engage the spectators but every once in a while i like to tell a player when they start beaking i'm like if you were any better i wouldn't be here messing up these calls oh 
Well, my favorite was when I was umpiring in the Frontier League, which I guess we might talk about Brett Gray. Uh, anyway, in the Frontier League, what the players were uh, were making, and uh, it was like it was dirt. It was dirt cheap, like seventy five dollar US a week or. No, not a week. I forget whatever it was, but the fine if they got ejected was a seventy-five dollar fine. And this player from the visiting team was was uh, was chirping me from the first base dugout. I said, "Hey, hey, I don't want to throw you out of the game because I know what you make a week." And all his teammates, <laughs> all his teammates got all over him. <laughs> but anyway, so the Frontier League. Yeah, let's talk about the Frontier League. How many years did you work there, Jim? Uh, they were here three years, the London Werewolves, the Werewolves of London, Warren Z. Vaughn, John Kuhn from Florida. He adopted the nickname. He That was their theme song. Uh, it was great, but it was three years, 1999, uh, 2000, 2001. And they, they ran a really fun show in that uh, league. And the Frontier League was pretty good. It was an independent league, but they've had a lot of players who've gone on to play in the in the major league. The, the, best, the best story out of my Frontier League days uh, was... 2000, Brett Gray was pitching for the London Tigers, and I'm I'm working the plate. It was a pretty big crowd that night, probably 3,000. They always John Coon always had a promotion, so we always had really good crowds at uh, Labatt Park. So I'm working the plate, and Brett, Brett's cruising along pretty good, and uh, he's got a strikeout, then another strikeout, another strikeout. Soon it's up to about 19 or 20 because we hear people kind of talking about it, and I'm thinking, holy macro, like my I realized that yeah, my right arm is getting nasty. <laughs> Anyway, so long story short, he ends up with 25 strikeouts that night, which is the second most in professional baseball history. The most was 1952, a pitcher in the Appalachian League, where I happened to umpire, but not until a few years after that. 27 strikeouts in uh, was the most ever in professional baseball. And I think the major league record still stands right now is either 20 or 21, something like that. So Brett Gray is in the uh, professional baseball record book. The Canadian kid, Canadian kid, just an hour and a half down the road. He's in the Cooperstown. He's got, uh, I think his hat or something is there. His uh, The scorecard's in Cooperstown. His uh, uniform, I think, is in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame in St. Mary's, Ontario. I was a little disappointed that the they didn't ask for my indicator or something like that. <laughs> Nothing from the uh, umpire, because I felt I had something to do with that. But the, the two great stories out of that, he had he was up to about 20, I think the 25th strikeout might have been this call. It was the, about the eighth inning. There was a check, well, it wasn't even a check swing. There was two strikes on the batter, and I don't think he took his bat off his shoulders. And the London catcher just said, will you ask? So I go down to first base. My uh, my friend, Joe Serratore, is working first base. I said, Joe, he didn't go deep. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> From Chillicothe, Ohio, the Chillicothe paint, the batter never said a word. He knew he hadn't swung, but they were losing the game. And so I said to Joe after, I said, why did you call that? Why did you say he went when he didn't even take it off his shoulder? He says, yeah, I want to be part of the record too. And that's sort of, oh my God. <laughs> but the best, but the best story out of that, that was in the ninth inning, Brett, as I say, already had his 25th strikeout. There was two out in the ninth inning and the manager, Andy McCauley, sends uh, Bruce Gray, who's Brett's father. Brett had just told Andy in the ninth inning, tell my dad to come out. But Andy didn't know why. So anyway, Andy says to Brett, go out to the mound. Well, Brett's thinking, why am I going to the mound? All the, of course, he starts going out to the mound. The kid's got 25 strikeouts, one out away from the game being over. And the crowd is booing, like they think yes. he's going out to take out or something like that. He gets out there and Brett, and Bruce says to his son, he says, I don't know why I'm here. And Brett says, 
well, yeah, you're here because I want to ask you to be the best man at my wedding on September 23rd. Oh, of that wow. Year. Wow. Because, <laughs> oh. and, and I kind of walked, I walked out because I wanted to hear what the heck was going on. And I heard that, I thought, oh my God, that is what a classic, what a yeah. classic. And again, that's what makes baseball such a, such a great game. You don't, you don't hear those stories in, uh, like, you don't, the trainer doesn't go out to the goalie when he's hurt and the goalie says, Oh, will you be my best man or something like that? That's it. No, but exactly. yeah, it makes baseball such a, such a great, great sport for all the, all the stories. And it doesn't always have to be an umpire story either. That makes it, uh, makes it so good. We just have the privilege of being there when the moments are made. Yeah, we are. And we see it from both sides. That's the best. That's the best part. And that's why we say leading edge umpire stories with umpires about umpiring and covering topics on both sides of the plate. It's so funny because uh, people have always said to me, well, like, you never win, you never lose. And I said, I'm always a winner. I'm always a winner because I'm umpiring. I'm involved in the greatest sport. When I started at the London Free Press, I was umpiring. Plus, I was also refereeing. I got as high as refereeing Junior B in the Ontario Hockey Association. And there came a point when I was also covering Junior B games for the paper, and I realized I can't referee anymore because one night I'll be refereeing them. The next night I got to go into the dressing room and ask them questions, and they're yes. still pissed off at me the previous <laughs> night. But I did tell the sports editor at the time, John Bormatag, that I'm not going to quit umpiring. So you better not start assigning me to cover inner county when I'm umpiring in the league. And, that, and he said, okay, I'll make you a deal. I won't, uh, won't do that. Because he knew, he knew uh, how much baseball meant, uh, meant to me. So that's always been, uh, as I say, you see it from both sides and uh, it's a great, so you're never a loser. You're never a loser. And at the end of the day, you're always going home with a game feed too. So that helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's never too late, Jim, but if Cooperstown does call, I would recommend sending them the can of A535 that you put on your shoulder after that game that night. Well, you know what I was thinking today? I thought, what would be a great line? And I'll, I'll use it. I thought today, okay, when I die, I will will them my right arm. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'd rather, I'd rather go to the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Because <laughs> more of my friends will end up going there and they'll look at that and go, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Jim just won't go away. So let's move on, Jim. You have nine international championships under your belt. That includes five senior championships, four junior championships, and the 1993 World University Games in Buffalo, New York. Now, interestingly enough, Jim, we've actually talked about the World University Games on a previous episode where Mammoth New Brunswick's own John Can hits a home run with two outs in the eighth inning to help Canada with a 3-2 win to claim the bronze medal over Japan. Now, where were those games played? At the same park where the Toronto Blue Jays are now playing. So Canadian baseball is quite the history there in Buffalo at Shallon Field. Now, can you share with us quickly what some of the experience was like just driving down the road, across the bridge, and over the river? Uh, well, I'll tell a quick uh, World University Games uh, story. Uh, my crew was Glenn Johnson from Winnipeg. Glenn uh, was in the Baseball Canada program for a number of years. Glenn actually worked the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. Yes. yes. And I think after that is when Glenn packed in umpiring because he was also a referee in the Canadian Football League. Oh, yeah, and one time when we were out in Edmonton working, I think it was the Intercontinental Cup, Glenn was refereeing the football game that night, and he came to a game to say hi to us. That was the first time I ever meet, ever met Glenn. And so we, they got us tickets that night to go to the game, so we got to see Glenn officiate. But then, of course, Glenn went on to be the supervisor for CFL officials and the, the vice president of officiating, and he's now since retired from even the, the head office in the, in the CFL. But there was Glenn, myself, 
we had an umpire from Cuba and we had an umpire from Taiwan. And that was a great, uh, we communicate, put it this way. The communication was fun. We right. Glenn would be in the front seat, the Taiwanese and the Cuban umpire be in the back seat. The Taiwanese would be speaking Chinese to the Cuban. The Cuban is speaking, speaking Spanish to the, <laughs> I don't think they understood anything, to say, but they'd be laughing away back there and we'd just be, but anyway, we went into this bar because we ended up, we were supposed to stay at the University of Buffalo, but it was one of those competitions that year where they weren't sure what countries were coming, how many athletes, they ended up with too many athletes. So they had to move the officials down to uh, one of the state colleges uh, in Fredonia, about 30 minute drive. Uh, to the west of Buffalo along the lake. We worked a game at the at the main stadium one day. So we thought we'd just go along the lake and, and uh, have, a, have a view of the lake and that sort of thing. So we found this bar. Actually, it was right beside the New Era. We got into the New Era company to see if we could buy umpire caps. We couldn't buy a, we couldn't buy a cap, and they didn't sell the major league caps to right. amateur umpires back then. So anyway, but there was a bar right beside it. So we thought, oh, let's go for a beer. So we're sitting at the far end. Again, Glenn and I are sitting there talking. The Taiwanese and the, the, the Cuban, they're talking to each other, not knowing what <laughs> each other say, but laughing away. There's other guys a little farther down. And it's kind of a bit of a redneck look, and we're thinking, oh, no, are we in trouble? Finally, there's a lull in the conversation. The guy farther down, he looks at us and says, hey, y'all aren't from around here, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, what was your first clue when I point at the other two? <laughs> yeah. I, I start laughing. I go, oh, good, we're safe. But we uh, one day we decided, oh, let's take the guys across the border to see the, the Canadian the Canadian Falls from the Canadian side. I'm just pulling up to the bridge to go across, and I go, whoa! And I do a quick U-turn. We got a Cuban in the car for him to get into the United States to begin with. We flew with the team, but we come there and go try to go back. There's no way he's getting back in the right. country. So right. thank you. But again, it's the off the field uh, stuff. But one of the, the neat things in that uh, in that championship, I guess the supervisor of umpires felt that we had a pretty good crew, so we did every American uh, game. They had, a, they had a good team, so it was fun to fun to do them. Although it, after a while, it got a little boring because they were they were cleaning up the opposition a lot. But it was kind of neat to do some real good quality uh, quality baseball. And just that whole experience of the and I went to basketball games. I went to other sports. Uh, when I was there and it's just because you want to take in that's the best thing about going to something like that is just not the sport you're working but go see the other sport try to meet some of the other officials like we got talking at the colleagues who we were staying we were talking to uh we we're talking to tennis officials we were talking to basketball officials that that sort of thing so it's always fun to share stories with uh, with those people join us on our next episode where we talk about Jim's second immigration issue when he smuggles a Cuban back into America <laughs> Yeah, that would have been, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't happen, just what we're going to put out there. Didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I can just picture this now, you guys in the car, right? You got a Taiwanese speaking to a Cuban, hand gestures going, nobody understands anything. But that's the equivalent of an Ontario speaking to a Manitoban too. Yeah, because there's times when Shui and I get together, like we've roomed together. It shouldn't be so much the language, but I'll tell a quick Shui story. I don't know how we got onto Shuey, but anyway, Ron Suchuk. I didn't say Shuey. I didn't. You, you brought Shuey up. <laughs> but anyway, oh, okay. I just <laughs> said Manitoba, so everyone runs right to Ron Suchuk. You haven't worked a national or an international till you room with Ron Suchuk, <laughs> and he calls you into the ba- into the bathroom and says, "Here, let me show you how I shave my head." <laughs> <laughs> so you stand there.
there for five minutes while he lathers up and he gets this little hand razor, his palm, it fits in his palm and he takes it and he's doing his head. He's shaving it up and he, then he goes, here, feel that. And you got to feel it. And it's like, oh, Jesus, Shuey, that's something I really didn't have to watch. <laughs> anyway, that's my one Ron Sue Chuck story. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, let's move on. I can't believe you haven't had Shuey on your show yet. That's just the way the cookie crumbles, I guess. Well, I'm issuing a challenge to him. He better get on this show. And with that challenge... It's time that we put an end to the first half of the interview with 1988 Olympian Jim Cressman. Please join us on the second half of this interview in the next episode, where we talk about his 1988 Olympic experience, his local legends, and everyone's favorite 10 questions. Now before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's a common rule myth that people believe if a batted ball hits home plate, it's a foul ball. But my question is, What happens if a batted ball hits the plate in the right field foul territory bullpen? Take care, everybody, and stay safe.